Hello and welcome to The Hardy Brain, the show that takes athletic, introverted entrepreneurs and leaders and transforms them into ironclad brain performers. I'm your host, Dr. David Hardy, and today, as always, we have an amazing guest with us. He is the number one coach for conflict avoidance. He is the author or co-author of nine different books. He has an amazing podcast where he has interviewed everyone from Larry King to Ivan Mersner, and is on a mission to transform how people feel and deal with themselves and others. Welcome to the show, Dr. Mark Golston. How are you doing today? I'm good. And call me Mark because I'm going to call you David. All right. Sounds perfect. Now, I was listening to one of your podcasts there and this came up. So you are the author of Just Listen. Is there anyone out there who you just do not want to listen to anymore? Well, I'll share something with you. Uh, I'm in my 70s, uh, early 70s, but well, mid 70s. And okay. I've reached that point in my life. Uh, and I couldn't do this when I was younger, and you'll understand why. But when I look at my schedule and I see who's on my schedule, I only see names that put a smile on my face. I have eliminated right. anyone that doesn't make me smile. I actually have a TEDx talk called What Made You Smile Today? But I can do that because I'm at this stage of my life. And in fact, I, you know, I am an executive coach and one of Marshall Goldsmith's 100 you know, coaches. So we're a pretty uh, sort of elite group. But right. uh, when companies approach me, they'll often have a high performer but needs some help with his or her non-technical skills. And I, and I probably lost a fair amount of money. And I say, I'll tell you what a deal breaker is. It's got to be someone that I can fall in love with and root for. And... If you think I'm going to have any problems falling in love with them, and I don't mean it in the sexual way, I mean right. it like I just, I just want to root for them. And uh, if you think I'm going to have any trouble with this person, uh, I'll give you a freebie first, uh, first call with them when I tell them I can't work with them because that could be a wake-up call. You know, because they'll come off in a certain way and I'll say, I can see that you're a high performer. I can see that you're really successful. I can see why the company wants to invest in you, but I can also see why uh, uh, we're not going to meet after this uh, because I don't want to work with you. Right. And they'll say, why? And I'll say, because I've given you multiple chances to like you and you failed at each of them. I've given you multiple chances to root for you, and you failed at those. Right. So what are some uh, of these what, chances that you're, you're giving these people? Well, it's interesting because, uh, uh, as you mentioned, I am uh, the world's top coach in uh, overcoming conflict avoidance. And what started that is I did a survey on LinkedIn got about 530 votes, and it was pretty consistent across the groups that I belong to. I said, how often do you think avoiding conflict contributes to an individual or a company's failure? 
frequently, okay. occasionally, or rarely. It was pretty consistent. And it was something like 71%, correct? 71% frequently, about 21% occasionally, 7% rarely. And so I wow. thought, wow, this is, this is epidemic. And in fact, nearly, nearly everybody avoids some conflict. And, uh, and here's an interesting insight. And I'm not going to name names, but you can fill in the blanks from the world of politics and world leaders. Uh, what, as I've dug into it, what I realize is that bullies generally do not avoid conflict. They actually like stirring it up. Because when they stir right. it up, they can often knock you or I off balance. And when we're mm -hmm. off balance, they can push us in any direction. But one of the things that I realized about bullies is they're conflict avoidant with someone they really need something from and where that other person has the ability to refuse them. Uh, okay. So how much does conflict come down to then basically the different power dynamics between people? Well, I think I think uh, there's a a lot uh, where that's happening, and and one of the reasons people avoid conflict, and we're not talking about the bullies, but the other people, is the most frequent reasons are, well, if I confront the other person, uh, it's going to escalate, and if it escalates, right. it's going to get worse, and I'm already intimidated by them anyway. Uh, the second thing is, in my experience, confrontation hasn't made things better because that's my own personal experience or I watch my parents never be able to resolve conflict uh, except they got divorced. Mm -hmm. uh, the third reason, which is not so apparent, but I find intriguing because I'm a psychotherapist and uh, uh, believe somewhat in the unconscious. One of the fears that some conflict avoidant people have is that you'll provoke the other person into saying something to you that then triggers a very dark part of your own personality that you don't want to believe is there. So for instance, ah. let's say you're conflict avoidant and, and, and you like to perceive yourself as a decent person, uh, a relatively giving person. And I'd like you to imagine that you're dealing with someone who you have gone out of your way tens, hundreds of times doing everything for them, bailing them mm -hmm. out. Uh, and then imagine that you ask them to do the slightest thing for you, a slight errand, and they come back and they say, uh, why should I do that for you? You never do anything for me. So can you get what I'm coming from? What it would trigger inside you. Oh, yeah. And there's something that I refer to as the, the, the outrage, enrage, bifurcate. And what I mean okay. by that is when you're dealing with some people who can outrage you, uh, it then feels like it's going to cross over to you becoming enraged in your behavior. But if you have a lot uh. of uh, feelings of guilt or shame at becoming enraged, so the bifurcate 
is you will do something to suppress that, but it'll take all your energy to suppress it, at which point you'll be off balance. And when you're off balance, they can push the envelope further. That, that is absolutely an amazing approach to it. Uh, one of the things that I've kind of concentrated on with uh, the functional neurology is this aspect of basically you have receptors in your own body to that self-awareness and confidence, basically, and then all the receptors from the outside world. So basically, in these situations, I kind of see it as it's an overload of outside stimulus coming at you and, a, and kind of a a suppression of all that body feeling and confidence from inside you that that's kind of at play here. Like, do you see this more in say maybe introverts versus extroverts? And what do you see in bullies versus the person getting bullied then? Well, I think you just uh, nailed it. I, I see a lot of it in introverts. And in, in fact, during the pandemic, uh, I co-authored a couple books uh, with a wonderful woman named Diana Handel. She was the CEO of Long Beach Memorial Hospital when an employee of the month came in and killed his two supervisors and himself. And she wow. led the hospital through trauma back to being financially and psychologically sound. So we did two books together. The first one is Why Cope When You Can Heal. And the second one Brilliant. was uh, Trauma to Triumph, a roadmap for leading through disruption and thriving on the other side. And why cope when you can heal? And here's a little marketing lesson I wish we'd learn is we should have made the subtitle uh, recovering, from tr recovering from Trauma. But the subtitle okay. was How Healthcare Heroes of COVID-19 Can Recover from PTSD. So that was a problem because a lot of healthcare workers do not want to reach for help. They're like the military, you know, they're, they're struggling, but they won't reach for help. And, and even though healthcare says, no, no, we want you, we want you to get help. No, we, we want you to be open. We understand you're depressed, but there still is a stigma against it. So, but, but to go along with what you just said, we, we came up with an algorithm for what goes on in a healthcare hero or a veteran. So, so imagine this, these are the steps that happened in your mind. And then I'd like you to weigh in and take it apart because it's based on lived experience and sort of empathically informed uh, information as opposed to necessarily evidence-based. So imagine you're a nurse or a doctor in the middle of New York, in the middle of the pandemic, in the middle of they're not having enough uh, protective equipment, uh, in the middle of the morgue overflowing, so you leave the hospital and there's storage units with bodies, something that you're not at all prepared for. So the steps are when you see something like that, uh, the first three steps are there, there's the trauma of that, and then we call it the horror, terror, fragile trifecta. So what you're okay. seeing is horrifying, meaning it's beyond what you can imagine or what you're trained for. Uh, and when you're in it, you're just surviving and you're using your training. You get a little room from that and you go back to your apartment and suddenly it dawns on you on what the heck you've been through. You start to feel terrified. Uh, you're tempted to not go back, but you're very duty bound because there is that uh, approach with, 
healthcare workers and military, you know, I'm not going to let my peers down. And so you go through horror, terror, fragile, and you feel an overwhelming sense of panic. But because you're going to go back, what you do is you shut the panic down. And what enables you to do that is the adrenaline rush plus a little bit of the testosterone allows you to push away thoughts and push down feelings so you can function. And so there you are able to go and you didn't think you could make it through uh, the entire shift and you've been up for 24 hours. So superficially, you almost feel superhuman, but inside you know something's getting messed up. And you keep doing this day after day. And uh, and what one of our uh, patients said is, it's a little bit like taking a screaming alley cat and locking it in a cellar so you can function. And then you take another one, and then another, and then five more, then 10 more, then 100 more. And they're all locked up in the cellar, screaming, but you don't hear them. But then when the danger goes away, the insulation goes away. And the adrenaline rush, uh, which uh, can uh, uh, dampen pain, physical and emotional, when the adrenaline rush lessens and the testosterone lessens, it's like those screaming alley cats want to come out. And you're afraid if you open them up, they're all going to rush through the door and they're going to eviscerate you from the inside out. So something I've been trying to do and I gave up on, uh, I, one of my books is uh, PTSD for Dummies. And I've been trying to rename the disorder into something that people actually live, which is re-traumatization avoidance. Okay. So when you talk to someone who's been deeply traumatized by the pandemic, by uh, child molestation, by abuse, when you look at such a person and you say to them, good for you, you're so strong, you got over it. Anyone who's been deeply traumatized will look at you and they'll say, I didn't get over it. No, say, no what way do you mean? They'll say, I, I, got, I got past it. Well, what do you mean? I'm not the same. What do you mean? I don't totally relax. I get exhausted, but I don't totally relax. I don't really know peace. I have fun. I don't know joy. Uh, and then if you say to them, uh, do you think you could go through it again? A number of them will look at you like deers in the headlights and say, I don't know how I survived it the first time. And I think if it happened again, it would take me down. And this is why if you can picture a, you know, a military veteran you know, and all the symptoms of PTSD are to avoid re-traumatization avoidance. The numbing, the social withdrawal, the using of alcohol and drugs, the intrusive nightmares, the increased startle reflex. So, you know, so they're all trying to keep that away because it should have taken them down the first time. And there you are, you're a veteran, you're away from people. 
you're feeling good because you're in your pickup truck and then the car next to you backfires and you just about go through the roof because there you are, you know, lulled into a false sense of relaxation. It gets triggered and you're back there again. So part of what we wanted to do, but the barriers to entry are huge, is we wanted to do some pilot studies with healthcare workers or veterans where we take them through all those steps that I mentioned and they share the narrative. Uh, they, they start to hyperventilate, uh, but we're like shamans through an ayahuasca experience. We say, no, 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 it's not happening again. What's happening is you're remembering it in the safety of other people. And that safety of other people is we're all immersed in oxytocin. So we're feeling pretty mm -hmm. safe here. And in the safety of that, uh, we're opening people up to remember and refeel what they pushed away and do it safely. Right. And then you walk people through it. No, breathe through it. And, and what's happening is it's not happening again. You're not going to die. What's happened is we have unrepressed and unsuppressed the thoughts and feelings that you pushed away in order to survive it in the first place. Does it make sense to you? That makes Dave? absolutely amazing sense to me. Like you've hit on so many of the, the topics and that, and really put that emotional perspective behind it for other people. Uh, in those kind of acute situations of trauma, there's gonna be a physiological response. You produce massive amounts of stress chemistry, like you had said. And the worst thing you can do is just sit still and let that stress chemistry build and the receptors upregulate, downregulate. So the movement and the actions that people do make sense in that survival situation there. And then when we're trying to get people better, yeah, you see parts of the brain that have just become overactive, that all that intense stimuli has just caused that part of the brain to to just light up, as you mentioned, like an increased startle response. There can be a noise that just sets people off. And all of these physiological things that happen in these, these acute situations, and, and they, they just go down this road where, once again, it's more about this outside world and bombardment of this stress. And then the, the picture becomes, well, how do we calm down those parts of the brain and how do we stimulate other parts of the brain that give different sensations? And we see this a bit with uh, EDMR or hypnosis where you're basically doing different frequencies of sound and different eye movements to, to calm down that system. And uh, this is really why the, I believe that the psychological world and the physical stimulation world really need to have more conversations on on how they can combine these these body approaches to change the state of somebody as they're going through the counseling and and being walked through by by an absolute professional like yourself with when it comes to the emotional trauma and, and getting past it and uh, I, I just commend you on the on the work you're doing there and it's it's absolutely amazing to, to go through and and hear basically the empathy that you're you're putting and explaining with people who've gone through these these situations and uh, just kind of speak to uh, 
your your approach here, and I believe you've labeled it uh, uh, surgical empathy, and how that plays out with this as well. Well, when people are traumatized, um, and one of the analogies I use is, if you're drowning, and you know a lifesaver approaches you, swims out to you, you know a big part of the lifesaver's training is to be able to hold that drowning person in a way that's safe so that they don't pull you down with them. Right. And so uh, what I believe is that during intense trauma, we don't form psychological attachments. We form psychological adhesions. Okay. So an attachment, you can maybe reason behaviorally do something, but an adhesion needs to be surgically excised. And, and surgical empathy is, uh, is an approach that uses a process. And again, uh, again, this is too much outside of evidence base, but you're giving me a long leash. But (laughs) surgical empathy is an approach that uses a process that I call empatholysis, like dialysis. Mm-hmm. And empatholysis is it lyses the psychological adhesions. So I'll give you an example. Um, there's an anecdote that I've shared on a number of podcasts. And uh, when I, my practice had a pretty decent percentage of suicidal people because one of my mentors was a fellow named Dr. Ed Schneidman and he was one of the leaning pioneers in suicide prevention. He was at UCLA. He was a mentor and he would do consultations to still suicidal but not acutely suicidal patients on the inpatient wards and sometimes those would be patients that the residents didn't want to see as outpatients because even though they weren't acutely suicidal Mm-hmm. They would prefer that they be referred to someone else. So Ed would go and do a consultation. And during the consultation, he would call me. He'd put the person on the phone. And he'd always say the same thing. Mark, this is Ed. I'm here with this handsome young man. I'm here with this lovely young woman. They're in a lot of pain, Mark. You could help them, see them. He'd put them on the phone. And then we'd arrange and I'd start seeing them. So they weren't acutely suicidal, but many of them, it was just part of their makeup. And there was one patient that I'll call Nancy, and she'd made three attempts prior to uh, my seeing her. And she'd been in the hospital two or three times a year for three or four years before I was seeing her. And in those days, you could stay in the hospital for five, six weeks. You know, it it wasn't the way it is now. Medicate them, 72-hour hold, get them out. And and I started seeing her, and she she wasn't catatonic, but she was kind of lifeless. And once a month, I would moonlight at a state psychiatric hospital, Metropolitan State Hospital in Norwalk, California. And sometimes you're up a couple, like a double shift, shift, a triple shift. Sometimes you're overtired. So there I am, overtired. It's a Monday. I just got back from my moonlighting. And there's Nancy not looking at me as she never did. And as I sat in the room with her, um, 
And I didn't think I was helping her. I was seeing her for six months and she rarely said anything. And I, that was the longest she'd gone without a suicide attempt or hospitalization, but I didn't think I was helping her at all. And on this mm. particular day, I'm with her. And as I'm looking at her, all the color in the room turned to black and white. And I'm looking out and the room is black and white and I feel cold and chilly. So I did a neurologic exam on myself I'm a psychiatrist, not a psychologist. You know, I'm tapping my knees and I'm looking at my fingers, seeing if I have double vision. And, and you know, and I say, nope, you're not having a stroke or seizure. And I just felt cold. And then I had this crazy yeah. idea that I was looking out at the world, feeling what she felt like in the dark night of the soul. Uh, wow. So, so I just, because I was uh, disinhibited, from the sleep deprivation, I said something to her that normally I wouldn't say. I said, Nancy, I didn't know it was so bad and I can't help you kill yourself. But if wow. you do, if you do, I will still think well of you. Hmm. Uh, and, uh, and I'll miss you And maybe I'll understand why you had to, to get out of the pain. And I thought, did I just say that? Or did I think that? And I thought, I think I just gave her permission to do it. And she made eye contact. It was one of the first times she made eye contact. Uh, not unlike the video I showed you before we went on this podcast. Because I, yes. I went to where she was and I wasn't judging her. I wasn't saying she was weak. I, I was saying I'd still think well of you and I'd miss you. Mm -hmm. And she looks at me and I thought she was going to say, thank you for understanding. I'm overdue. And I said, what are you thinking? And she's looking into my eyes like I'm looking into yours. And she said, if you can really understand why I might have to kill myself to get out of this pain, maybe I won't need to. Yeah. <laughs> And wow, then she, what a and, moment. Oh, you're right. Then she smiled, and then I grabbed under her eyes, and I said, I'll tell you what we're going to do. So she had grabbed under my eyes. Now I'm grabbing under her eyes. And I said, I'll tell you what we're going to do. I'm not going to give you any treatments that you've been through that really didn't work unless you suggest, you know, maybe we should try something, or maybe you should put me in the hospital. But, you know, unless you bring it up, I'm not going to throw things at you really haven't worked would that be okay and she looked at me and we, we were holding each other's eyes and she looked at me with a look that said keep talking I'm intrigued and then I leaned into her eyes and I said what I'm going to do instead is I'm going to find you wherever you are and I'm going to keep you company there no. because I don't want you to be alone anymore there would that be okay? And then she smiled and she started to tear up and the color came back to the room and it warmed up again. But could you track with that? You know, because that was surgical empathy, meaning she was so feeling so hopeless and cut off from the world and the world was treating her by pushing all these treatments at her Right, but it's a little bit like uh, 
it's a little bit like having a, an emotional abscess that needs to be drained before people give you antibiotics. Mm -hmm. And so I use surgical empathy and pierced the abscess and didn't expect anything of her. That's why I said, I'm going to keep you company there as long as it takes. You don't have to do anything. Right. And then she grabbed onto that. Now, what can people do to basically let some of these emotions go if they don't have somebody like yourself to, to practice this surgical empathy with? What are some of the strategies or, or takeaways that, that people can apply into their own lives if they're maybe alone or stuck in this place where they, they've maybe isolated themselves or society's isolated them? How do they kind of get this release and... Uh, and let the, these emotions go. Like you always hear people say, say to, to let things go. But for a lot of people, it's not that easy to do that. Well, you know, there's a backstory to my life, which is that I dropped out of medical school twice and finished. And I dropped mm -hmm. out twice probably because I had untreated depression. Okay. And, and the first time a medical school will allow you to take a leave of absence. They know it's stressful. And so mm -hmm. I came back and I think my depression came back. And so I asked for a second leave and I met with the Dean of the school who's about uh, fundraising. And I don't even remember the meeting with him. Okay. Uh, and I get a call from the Dean of students who cares about students. So the Dean right. of the school sent a letter to the Dean of students uh, uh, because he was worried, you know, we want to kick him out because we're losing matching funds. Uh, he's not failing any classes, but we want to get rid of him. So the Dean of Students calls me and says, Mark, I got a letter here from the main dean. You better come in. So I went in there and the letter said from the main dean, I've met with Mr. Goulston. We talked about alternate careers. I'm advising the promotions committee that he be asked to withdraw. Um, and I asked Whoa. the dean of students, what's that about? And he said, you've been kicked out. Jeez. And then I kind of folded. And I felt something wet on my cheekbones. <coughs> and I thought I was bleeding. And I'm touching my cheekbones and I'm looking and it's tears. Mm -hmm. And I came from a background with a depression age dad where you're only worth what you can do. If you can't do anything, okay. you're not worth anything. And it's not an unusual mind frame. And I guess I was at a point where I felt I couldn't do anything. Yeah, uh, kind of your identity is taken away at that point in time. Absolutely. And, and, and it's not like I had any other options. It's not like, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave to go find my way uh, in some other job. Uh, mm -hmm. I just wanted the pain to go away. And so he says to me, so imagine inside you don't feel you're worth anything. And he hit me with this trifecta. Uh, he said, um, uh, you didn't mess up, but you are messed up. But if you got unmessed up, I think this school would be glad they gave you a second chance. 
And even if you don't get unmessed up, mm-hmm. um, even if you don't become a doctor, even if you don't do anything the rest of your life, which is probably what I felt capable of, he looked at me, he said, I'd be proud to know you because you have a streak of goodness or kindness in you that we don't grade in medical school. Uh, You know, we assume it's there, but we don't grade it. And you have no idea how much the world needs that goodness and kindness. And you're not going to know how much they need it until you're 35, but you got to make it till you're 35. And then I just started crying from his compassion Uh, And this was the trifecta. He saw value in me for just me. He saw a future for me uh, that I didn't see. The world would need you. And then he said, look at me. And he pointed his finger at me. And he said, you deserve to be on this planet. And you're going to let me help you. So he arranged an appeal. He was just a PhD. And he arranged an appeal with the promotions committee that I had to meet with. And so he put his own reputation at risk. He stood up against the wishes of the dean of the medical school, and he's a PhD. Mm-hmm. And then I had to face the uh, you know promotions committee, and that went well. But the trifecta of seeing value in me, even if I didn't do anything, he probably said, you know, this kid may not do anything, but he doesn't hurt the world. Right. He, he, he's not someone who hurts people. So he deserves to be here. There's something about him uh, that I think the world's going to need him. And I think the something uh, uh, about me was uh, I've been trying to figure it out. And uh, I wrote a poem, I think, during my first year uh, uh and I wrote that when I was 24. And the end of the poem, basically, and it was called Lament for the Old. And I basically uh, said that what was missing in most of these people's, uh, these elderly people, three times my age, which I now am, was someone who could help relieve the loneliness of the future and the emptiness of the present and maybe someone to give a damn when they died mm-hmm. and that and that got published so so cuz i don't know that he knew me but you know he saw that poem so he probably thought there's something to this guy <laughs> that You're right and so but his standing up for me at his own cost So seeing value in me for who I am, seeing a future for me that I couldn't see, and standing up for me at his own cost, that was the trifecta. So what happened is I took a year off, went to a place called the Menninger Foundation, which is a big psychiatric institution foundation. It was in Topeka, Kansas. It's now in Houston in the Midwest. Mm -hmm. And I grew up outside of Boston, in a suburb of Boston, but I was able to connect with schizophrenic farm boys. I, I, I don't know how I did it, but <laughs> I, dis- I discovered I had a knack, you know, and for someone who didn't feel he had anything. And so knowing I had some sort of a knack, I made it through that year, came back, finished, 
and then just had to make it through the next two years, which wasn't that difficult because it was just rotations. It wasn't all book stuff. Right, yes. And yeah. then I uh, did a psychiatric residency at UCLA. Okay. And, uh, and so I just paid it forward. What that dean of students did for me, he did surgical mm -hmm. empathy on me. Right. And so, so th does that sort of connect some of the dots for you? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. That that is an amazing, amazing journey. And uh, uh, what what I take away from it is basically that uh, with all this hardship and pain, is that it can be directed into into ways to help other people, and that's kind of part of the healing process is to be able to to share that pain. Um, with others, but in a fashion that that uh, that gives them validation for what they're going through. Yeah, absolutely. I'll share something. I'm not going to identify the person, but someone I know opened up to me. They're 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 not they're not a patient, not a client. Uh, I've sort of known them, and they opened up to me that uh, uh, that they are. Uh, they got involved with child pornography and got oh. caught. Mm -hmm. Weren't soliciting yeah. anything, but because of that was put on a list. Right, yeah. You know, and wherever they go, cost them a marriage. And we met not too long ago, and uh, I don't think he's an evil person. You know, my, you know, my view is, here's my philosophy of life. Identify, mm -hmm. stop, protect yourself from evil in the world at the earliest opportunity. But for everyone else who's flawed, just like you and me, cut them slack. Okay. So I don't believe this person is evil but because it has that terrible association and right. the pain that he felt. Uh, and I said to him, you know, and I'm not, I don't even know why he isn't suicidal, but the pain is so much, you know, I said to him, look, I, I believe in turning pain into something or other. And if this is something that's going to follow you, um, uh, I even suggested something. Uh, uh, so if the book comes out, you heard it first here. I, I said, I think mm -hmm. you should write a book called Written Off because you've been written okay. off by everyone. And, if you, and what you start the uh, book with is uh, I don't believe I'm evil or a danger to anyone, probably except myself at this point. Mm -hmm. But I'm not 100% sure because of how the world views me. Right. And then I say, just write your pain out. And I just feel for him because I think he's a decent person. 
And there'll probably be some people who listen now to this podcast and say, oh, Dr. Mark, you were doing so well. And now you're feeling sympathetic. Well, you know, so shoot me. I don't believe this person's evil. Right. I believe for a short period of his time, he went down that road and because it's associated with such sinister type things, mm-hmm. he's the scarlet letter. Yeah, definitely. But you're right. You're right. I think, and if you're listening to this and you're going through a lot of pain uh, and you're feeling depressed and you're feeling suicidal, that pain is teaching you something that you'll be, that will enable you to relate to people later on in your life where you will be able to alleviate pain in other people in ways that most other people can't. Right. Because uh, you'll be able to use your own surgical empathy and cause them to feel felt by you which is different than they're merely feeling understood by you. Wow. That that has a lot of meaning behind it. That's for sure. And look, I'm not, look, I'm not, I'm not against, you know, I know, I know what you're doing and the uh, brain and the regulation, but I, uh, but I believe there should be partnering that I think uh, a lot of the new approaches that you're, uh, that you're one of the champions of and a pioneer in, you know, I'm really rooting for you because a lot of the medications are complicated and, and, and we're learning so much more about the brain and the mind. But you're not going to get me to sign off on the power of surgical empathy. <laughs> no, nor would I ever want you to. That, that is, is very heartfelt. And, uh, and I think everybody listening here is, is is a better person because of you explaining it to, to everyone. Um, one thing I'd like to kind of hear your take on is we've talked about kind of those suicidal thoughts and tendencies and then how people have this dark side, that this hidden dark side. What about the people who act out against others versus kind of hold that that anger inside or that that sadness or depression inside? to the point where it gets gets stewed up into those suicidal thoughts. But you can have the opposite. You can have people who take that out onto other people. And what's your approach with that? Is it kind of along the same lines here then? Or? Well, um, this is a slight tangent, but I'm going to share it anyway. <clears throat> mm-hmm. uh, I've, been trying, I've been trying to understand people who are anti-science anti-vax, anti-research. These are Uh the people when you say the research shows or follow the science. And what happens is they'll reject it. And one of the things I've discovered about them is, first of all, show me someone who acts acts out in a destructive and violent way and I'll show you someone who feels unjustifiably aggrieved. Okay. You know, they have grievances. You know, the world's done me wrong. Mm-hmm. And uh, I actually wrote something about this. And I, and, and I said, you know, in terms of the hashtag Me Too movement or hashtag Black Lives Matter, 
I'm in favor of supporting those because to me, historically, they have justifiable grievances. For decades, women and people of color, you know, the world really has been against them. Mm -hmm. But I think there are some people who have what I call unjustifiable grievances, meaning they seem to act entitled to what they don't deserve. So the people with justifiable grievances, they are entitled, the hashtag Me Too, Black Lives Matter, they're entitled to something. They, they deserve what they feel entitled to because historically something's happened to them. But right. there, there is another group who I don't see as justifiably aggrieved, meaning I've lost my job and, you know, and it's not fair and I'm losing it out to all these unpaid, you know, uh, these unskilled laborers and it's just not fair. Well, the point is, there is a real excess of job openings. Mm-hmm. You just have to skill up. You just have to go do some training. Instead of feeling like it's just not fair, go learn skills. And a lot of them are just intimidated. I haven't learned anything new since high school. You're wanting me to learn coding. You're wanting me to learn computers. I can't even. I can't even get my uh, cell phone to work. And right. so, so you're uh, kind of talking about the inner conflict that's going on with, with mm-hmm. what their belief system is, and uh, how do you fight off some of that inner conflict then? What's, what's interesting, I, I write all over the place, and I'm one of the founding members of the Newsweek Expert uh, Forum which means every six weeks I throw up a column and I'm on a bunch of of panels. And there is one article I wrote about uh, how an anti-vaxxer and pro-vaxxer could resolve the conflict between them. And And it was a fantasy dialogue. So I can't remember it, but people can go there and look up, uh, I don't know, Goulston, Vaccination, uh, Newsweek, you'll find it. Uh, But the fantasy conversation was uh, where someone who is pro-vaccine was really trying to convince someone who was anti-vaccine. Right, yeah, it's so polarized that. And the anti-vaxxer was so polarized. Uh, Oh, definitely. uh, And the pro-vaccine person says, uh, uh, you know, you know, you seem really strong against vaccine. What is it? And then, and then I said, just ask them what's going on. And in the fantasy dialogue, the anti-vax person said, people like you have been talking down to me all my life. I am not just an ignorant, redneck, stupid, you know, illiterate person, but that's how you've made me feel forever. You have talked down to me forever. And you don't even care about me. What you really care about is that I'll get sick and infect you or one of your friends. Uh, and I'm sick and tired of it. So so in the fantasy dialogue, uh, that comes out. Like, what's really going on? Mm-hmm. And the anti-vaxxer erupts. But in the fantasy dialogue, 
the provaxer pauses and says, you're absolutely right. I have been talking down to you. Uh, and the reason I'm talking down to you is because I'm scared. And the right. reason I'm scared is because if you don't get vaccinated, you could you could get someone else sick. But you are right. I have been talking down to you. I have not been talking respectfully towards you. And, uh, and I'm sorry. And I was wrong. And I was... I'm sorry. And then what happens is the anti-vaxxer says, no one like you has ever apologized to me, ever. Mm -hmm. And then the pro-vaxxer lets go of the vaccination thing and just owns up to being disrespectful and saying, no, no, you pointed it out to me. Out of my being afraid, I talked down to you. I treat you like crap. You don't deserve that. I'm wrong. I feel ashamed. And again, the anti-vaxxer is then, really, nobody's ever, nobody's ever apologized to me like that. <laughs> and then, and, and so the pro-vaxxer lets go of what the content is. And he just says, I'm sorry. You know, you deserve, you deserve a better. And then at that point, the anti-vaxxer says, well, you know, you're not trying to hurt me. You know, when you apologize, then I don't know, you know, maybe it's worth trying. <laughs> but, the, but do you follow how that shifts? Right. And yeah, I think you can, if if anyone listening in, in on this is still polarized on, on the topics, you can basically use that strategy and the example you were using for any conflict uh, situation and uh, I think even if you're more opposed one way or the other that that example is even more impactful because then you feel the emotion as you're going through your your uh, your topic here and uh, your strategy and more importantly just how you are listening to people and taking their point of view in I, I think it's absolutely amazing well here's one of the challenges for a lot of researchers, a lot of scientists. Mm -hmm. And I love scientists. I think that they, the future of the world and they can save the world. But, you know, a few of them are, they're mostly left brain. You yes. know, they flirt Very with being so. on the, on the spectrum, you mm -hmm. know, which is mild Asperger's. Right. And, yep. and what happens is since their intention is not to hurt people or offend them, when people feel hurt or offended, they believe it's the other person's problem because my intention is not to upset you at all. But the point is when you talk scientifically, you can cause someone who felt talked down to by their, by their science teacher who said, Johnny, you're not listening. Johnny, you know, uh, go into the corner. So in their mind, their past experience could be that scientists have talked down to them, whereas I don't think scientists talk down. In fact, anything, I think scientists are a little bit anxious about sharing what they know because they never know when someone's going to snap back at them, you know, and saying, oh, you're so arrogant. You're so condescending. You're such a know-it-all. 
and mm-hmm. and your intention is I don't know any of it. I mean, any scientist knows this so much more. I don't know. I'm I'm not a know-it-all at all. And my intentions are good. How come you're reacting so defensively? Oh, there you go again, lecturing me. Right. I'm not lecturing you. But but the but you can see the mismatch. But if you can realize that the way they experience you is real for them. And if they're feeling condescended to and talked down to, and you remind them of those teachers who uh, snickered at them, you know, uh, uh, for not paying attention, you can understand why there's a whole buildup of, uh, uh, I'm not going to believe the science. Mm-hmm. So anyway, I, I, you know, I hope people listening in uh, might replay the last five to ten minutes because uh, I think there are ways of getting through to people. In, in fact, if you're listening in and you're somewhat science-oriented, uh, uh, somewhat left brain, there's a possibility that you may have a intimate relationship with a spouse who doesn't want your advice or your analysis <laughs> and doesn't want uh, and will say, you're not listening to me. You're giving them solutions. You're trying to help. No, you're not listening to me. Well, I'm right. just trying to help. There you go again. Boy, don't you get it? So so here's a hack for all you science types who who don't intend to upset the people you love, but think you're talking down to them. Next time you get into that kind of a conversation, it's in one of my books. It's called The FUD Crud uh, uh, Technique. So that person... Amazing title to that. Well, that's why it makes it memorable. And exactly, so they, yeah. they vent at you. Mm-hmm. You pause. You don't lecture them. And you say to them, you sound frustrated and I think you're holding back. They're going to go, what? Yeah, you sound frustrated and I think you're holding back because I think you're upset and disappointed too. What? No, I think you're not just frustrated with me. I think you're upset because here we are doing it again. And I think you're Mm -hmm. disappointed. Can you fill me in on those so that maybe we can fix it? And then you, and then what you want to do is get them to just talk it all the way out. Well, this is what I'm frustrated about, blah, 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 and keep them talking. Well, I'm glad you, you told me that. Now, what are you upset about? Well, you said you wouldn't, but you did, blah, 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 blah. Well, I can see why that's upsetting. And what's happening is you're, you're mediating a catharsis. You're, you're, getting, mm-hmm. you're enabling them to get something off their chest safely. And once you get it through frustration and upset, you could say, and I'm guessing you're disappointed too. Disappointed in me, disappointed that here we are again in the same argument, disappointed in what our relationship is like. What's that about? And see if you can do that, it may calm it down enough to be able to then have a conversation. Right. Now, you've given so many strategies and ways to to basically use your words in these conflict situations. Um, 
this kind of goes into gaslighting and and other things as well is that people can take in these these strategies and listen to every single word you're saying and uh, and go in their mind I'm going to use this next time but then time goes along where there isn't these conflicts and they they kind of forget about things well you know how did it, it keep this and build this muscle though as you well, mentioned you, it is conflict to, mastery muscle well you have to decide what's important to you mm-hmm. so for instance it probably doesn't surprise you you know former fbi hostage negotiation trainer i don't mediate conflicts anymore the reason being is usually in those conflicts one of the parties tended to be the emotional bully Okay. And the other one tended to be the more conflict avoidant because, you know, they just felt intimidated. Mm-hmm. And what right. I realized is I would mediate the conflict, maybe resolve that conflict, but the conflict avoiding party, who is really decent, the non-bullying, non-emotional party, they were going to continue to be conflict avoidant throughout their life. There'll be a conflict mm-hmm. avoidant with uh, other relationships, their business partner, their co-founder. And so rather than just mediating something that just puts lipstick on a pain mm-hmm. temporarily, I decided to, no, no, uh, I, I, I really want to empower and embolden people who are conflict avoidant. And after I did the survey on LinkedIn, and it looks like, uh, and I and I see it everywhere. Almost everyone has a conflict they're avoiding. Oh, I can't take the keys away from my dad and he's going to kill someone the way he drives. And, oh, and and I'm through with my alcoholic brother. He's just manipulating everyone. And and, and my ex-husband and my ex-wife. So, um, uh, but if these people are still somehow in your life, even tangentially, uh, I think there might be some interest in people learning how to uh, overcome their conflict avoidance. And you raised a good point about, I tell you, people can learn my techniques and manipulate other people. So when Just Listen came out, which became the top book on listening in the world, mm-hmm. a number of companies would hire me to train their people in listening. And I said, you don't want them to listen. You want me to train them on some of the techniques in my book so they could close more business. Right, yeah. And I said, that's out of integrity for me. I can't stop you from buying the book and doing a book club, but I am not going to teach your people or train your people in listening when your pressure on them is to sell more. Right. So I refused a lot of business. Uh, and people would say, well, you're so idealistic. And I said, <laughs> you're darn right. And I'm sticking to it. So you're right. It depends on your As intention. You mm-hmm. uh, people can take some of the things, even from this podcast, and use it to manipulate another person. You know, it's interesting. I'm a big fan of Rob... Uh, Robert Cialdini, he wrote the books on influence. Top books on influence. They're Mm -hmm. wonderful books. But he puts in disclaimers. Even the people who invented 
neuro-linguistic programming, Grinder and Bandler. What mm -hmm. they, they put in disclaimers saying, we know this is powerful and you could use it to take advantage of other people. But our intention is not for you to use any of this to take advantage of other people because we know they are powerful techniques. Now, maybe that was just a sales technique because as soon as people heard that, they bought, they bought up tons of those books to use them <laughs> to exactly take advantage of other exactly, people. Exactly, yeah. So it really depends what your values are. I mean, mm -hmm. my values are to not hurt other people in the world. So once they, they have this value of how they're going to help people instead of harm people with, with everything you're saying, uh, it basically does come down to how often they practice it. And that's why just kind of one podcast or one snippet from you isn't enough for people. Uh, you really do need to take advantage of this information that's out in the world and practice it kind of daily and at least take some of it in. So when these situations do arise, that you've developed that muscle and that pathway in your brain that's going to actually take you into a different direction instead of that fight or flight aspect to it. Uh, with that being said, how do, how do people find out more about you? Where can they go to and to get even more of this information from you? Well, LinkedIn is pretty current and I'm listed there as the world's number one coach on overcoming yes. Uh, conflict avoidance. So uh, I will probably put most of my uh, most immediate information and, uh, and links up on LinkedIn, or you can go to markgoulston.com, or you can uh, go listen to my podcast, My Wake Up Call. Um, but I wanted to build on something you just said about practicing things. Um, mm -hmm. and, and certainly people can contact me and uh, uh, and I'm happy to speak to them or do team coaching. But I'm a fan of someone named Dan Sullivan. He was the he has a company called The Strategic Coach. And one of yes. the things that I really like about what he said is he said the word self-discipline is a terrible word because most people really use it to beat up on themselves. Uh, mm -hmm. I don't have enough self-discipline. What he says is... Life comes down to habits. Happy people have different habits than unhappy people. Successful people have different habits than unsuccessful people. And he said a habit is a discrete behavior, an observable behavior that you practice for 28, 30 days, you know, like an Alcoholics Anonymous. And when you take a discrete behavior and you practice it over and over again, you internalize it into your working uh, memory, into your uh, no, into your heart. It goes from your RAM into your hard disk, right. and then it doesn't, it doesn't take much energy to do it. I mean, I mm -hmm. I, uh, I did that with uh, dental flossing. I had this really scary dental hygienist, and she said, "You your your teeth are terrible," <laughs> and and she she put the the fear of God in me, and now I've become a crazy. Dental flosser. I, I mean, I've got food all over my windshield. I stop at a red light. Um, I'm flicking food pieces. I got pizza there. I got meat things. I got to clean the windshield because what's happened is uh, it, it went from habit to compulsion. So I have to ratchet it back a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, I think that's that's important is that it needs to be that practice and then you, you do develop it into into something that's automatic and the system just naturally does. How do people get through that initial struggle though or uh, make it to into basically that time period where it does become habit? Well, I'll tell you one of the other things I do. Uh, one of the things that motivates me and relieves me when I'm going to beat up on myself. Uh, mm -hmm. I have something I call the Dead Mentor Society. I've had eight mentors. They've died. The last one was Larry King from CNN, and before him, a guy named Warren Bennis, big leadership guy. So I was really blessed. And what happens is, uh, one of the things I noticed with my mentors is... I would never share something with them that I was intending to do unless I was 100% sure that I was going to do it. Mm -hmm. Because their esteem for me, their respect for me felt so good. The last right. thing I would want to be is flaky. So one of the things I would do with them, and it would increase my commitment, is I would say, uh, I have a favor to ask you. And now I do it to them and they're dead. I mean, I just call upon them. I'll say, I have a favor. Um, mm -hmm. I'm, I'd like to start on a program of daily exercise. And in a month's time, you don't even have to remember what, I, what the program is. All you have to say is, Mark, uh, what's that thing you were going to do? How are you doing with it? So again, I have these little hacks that motivate me. I mean, if you have someone in your life that you look up to, say, I have a favor. Uh, I, I want to make a public commitment to you, my mentor, my coach, my teacher, my parent, my uncle. Uh, I'm saying to you that I am intending to do this habit. And if you wouldn't mind, you know, you don't even have to remember the conversation. But, you know, in a month's time, if you just say, Mark, how you doing with the exercise? Uh, I don't want to disappoint you. Mm -hmm. So there's different ways we can motivate ourselves. I'll tell you something. Here's a good motivator. Do you have any children? No, not yet. Not okay, here's one of the greatest motivators. So my children are all grown. I have grandchildren. Okay. But my children could improve in certain ways. Mm -hmm. And I actually might do this because I need to exercise better. Uh, but one of the things that would really motivate me to exercise more frequently is I'd reach out to my children. I'd say, look, I need to be motivated to exercise. And if when you hear something you know, that you don't like, you pause before you, you know, you used an expletive or, or whatever, uh, I think that would serve you well in life. And if I knew that every day something like that happened or someone cut you off in traffic or whatever, you know, that you could sort of be calmer through it. If I knew you were doing that every day, uh, that would motivate me to exercise more. That would be a real incentive because I love all of you so much. And if mm -hmm. you would do that, uh, I'd exercise more. Uh, I don't want to push my luck and say I'm going to eat more healthily, but uh, you know, maybe that'll be the next step. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect.
Perfect. I think that's an amazing hack to use. Well, we can hammer each other with questions back and forth. And uh, I think uh, in order for people to digest this, this information uh, and take a little rest uh, and review it several times and definitely check out uh, Dr. Golston's website and all the information he has out there on the books and tune into the next episode of The Hardy Brain where we'll dive into more in-depth conversations and thank you for your time. I really appreciate it, Dr. Goldstein. And you have a great day. And for everyone listening, thanks. And we'll catch you at the next episode. Bye for now.